Hello and welcome to Rockets Bacchus. If you learn anything from this pod, it is completely unintentional. Except for maybe this next part about Bacchus himself. Bacchus was the Roman god of uh, fertility and wine and agriculture and a few other things. So that's it. That's as far as the learning is going to go on this pod. I have no idea what this pod is about yet. I hope it remains lighthearted and something we can get a laugh from. I will tell the odd story and I hope to hear a few of yours. The odder the better. The plan, if COVID and the gods allow, is to get people in for some drinks and topics to turn into a pod. Time will tell if that works out. I have a legal disclaimer for my crackhead lawyers. And it goes, I'm not promoting or condoning the use of drugs or group sex. Unless it is mushrooms and group sex combined, then I think you should dive headfirst into that hedonistic experience. Also, I strongly discourage cannibalism. Again, I strongly discourage cannibalism. I, like many of you, have had a great deal of time lately to ponder ponder any number of topics. What I've been thinking about lately is friendship and what friendship is. And probably none of the following is going to answer any, any of these deep questions you might have. This is simply a prelude to a story about a friend. Speaking of friends, what is the definition of friends? Well, Merriam-Webster definition of friendship is one, the state of being friends, and two, the quality or state of being friendly. From that jewel, I have learned that dictionaries are a shit place to learn about friendship. So all is well and good, but you're probably wondering, what did our Aristotle say about friends? Well, it turns out Aristotle had a great deal of things to say about friends. Aristotle describes or described three kinds of friendship. He has this to say about the first two, utility and pleasure. There are therefore three kinds of friendship, equal in number to the things that are lovable. Now those who love each other for their utility do not love each other for themselves, but in virtue of some good which they get from each other. So too with those who love for the sake of pleasure. It is not for their character that men love ready-witted people, but because they find them pleasant. It sounds to me like Aristotle just described the booty call there, the friends with benefits. The Greeks were way ahead of their time. And thus, these friendships are only incidental, for it is not as being the man he is that is easily dissolved. If the parties do not remain like themselves, or if the one party is no longer pleasant or useful, the other ceases to love him. To simplify, once you get what you want, you go your separate ways. You're just friendly about it. Aristotle described perfect friendship. It's a friendship of men who are good and alike in virtue. Those who wish well to their friends for their sake are most truly friends, for they do this by reason of own nature, are good and goodness for an in, is an enduring thing. Aristotle believed perfect friendship rare, and I would agree with that. So how does this kind of friendship form? As with all good things, with time. Paraphrasing here, Aristotle seems to be saying, it is a tough row to hoe, but by valuing virtue over pleasure or considering other, others' needs over your needs, you will be able to look back at the end of your days and see the faces of the few people we call true friends. Now, Bob Marley wasn't just a mu musician, and he summed up Aristotle best. I can pause for a moment while you go light up some ganja in honor of Bob. Go on, I'll wait. Where was I? Uh, yes, Bob.
Bob said, the truth is everyone is going to hurt you. You just got to find the ones worth suffering for. And just be thankful I didn't do that in a Jamaican accent. So that's what Bob had to say about it. And we won't go on more about what Aristotle said. We'll get into the story time. When my grandfather wanted to give me shit for something I had done, should have done, or was going to do in the future, he seemed to be able to tell what I was going to do in the future, he would put, up, put a bottle of rye on the table and tell me to go get two glasses. I was about to have a one-way conversation, and I wasn't the one to do the talking. He would pour, I would listen. There was plenty of wisdom in that man, but I wasn't smart enough to realize that at the time and suffered the consequences. One of those consequences came in the form of a hangover because to my grandfather, I needed plenty of correcting and apparently an enlarged liver. One of the many things he told me was my friends were all bums and wouldn't be there for me when the money was gone. He was right on all counts except for one guy, Corby. Corby was five foot six, a small guy, lean muscle with a maniacal laugh, often heard, and a shit-eating grin often seen. If you were his friend, he'd share his last sandwich, last bit of food with you, and in a fight he would back you to no matter the odds. He was the embodiment of the saying, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, but the size of the fight in the dog. Corby and I grew up in the same small farming community, neither, neither of us having much for cash, and we sure didn't come from affluence. We ended up in Drayton Valley, not far from where we lived, looking for work and beer, mostly beer. We met a local guy who let us rack at his shack, and shack is too generous a description. And he probably actually wasn't his. We were living on protein powder and tubes of squeezed cheese, white bread, and potatoes. Then we ran out of squeezed cheese, white bread, and potatoes, <laughs> and had nothing but protein powder. Protein powder isn't exactly a stick-to-your-ribs stick meal, and it's, but at that, at that time, we both found a job on a seismic crew heading to Cranbrook, B.C. to work. We had a day off before heading to B.C., which meant we could tear it up at, a, at the Live Wire, a bar in the carriage house in Calgary. Now, we're partying hard, and I'm not saying that I ate a gram of mushrooms offered by a tall easy on the eyes brunette, or that Corby ate mushrooms, but I will say that sometimes later, another gram of shrooms was offered gratis. Well, by the time the second gram of mushrooms kicked in, the Milky Way had collapsed into the bar and all its secrets were tantalizing close at hand, ready to be revealed. I was about to learn the meaning of life. Then the bar lights came on and flooded out the universe. Its secrets were safe, but everything around had a warm, sparkling neon glow. The brunette invited us back to her place for a party. So I went to the truck we headed to her, to her house. But she was lost. Having just moved to the house three or four days prior to this, she was just loaded enough that she didn't know where her house was. So we drove up and down the streets for a while, trying to spot her house. <laughs> we asked, there was a dude walking down the sidewalk, and we asked this stranger for directions. He comes up to the truck. Not only did he know where the party was, but he knew the girl in the truck. So into the truck he came, and off to her place we went. Walk into the party, and there's people from every walk of life. It was freaking at the Freaker's Ball. And we partied like rock stars. We gave her art for the first couple of hours, 
And at one point, I was under the kitchen table talking to some girl when somebody yelled my name and said my buddy needed help in the back room. What Corby needed help with was the five girls, including the tall brunette, and a number of lines of a white powder chopped up on a mirror. I was, I was told later that this was MDA, a close cousin of MDMA, or ecstasy as it is better known. Now, MDA can have some nasty side effects, but one of the more pleasant side effects is it makes you horny as hell, which is good if you have a release. The, the remainder of the wee hours must have pleased Bacchus tremendously because the rest of the night was an homage to debauchery, a night of perversion so etched in my memory that as I draw my last breaths, I'm sure it will replay often. We did arrive to the work crew RV point satiated and exhausted, not to mention on time. Cheshire cat grins and ready for work. Off to BC we went. I'll skip the excellent months in Cranbrook except for the ending. Me, Corby and the crew medic we call Band-Aid. Just back after a couple of, of days off, off work, we walked into a crew meeting. Apparently there had been some equipment damage and the boss wanted everyone to sign paperwork saying that they, had, they accepted responsibility for the damage. Now the three of us, we weren't signing anything. We weren't around uh, when the equipment was damaged so we saw no reason to accept responsibility for the damage. The boss was insistent that everybody sign. We said fuck that. So Corby and I headed out with Band-Aid bound for Calgary in a friend's birthday party. A couple of flats of tall boys were tossed into the back of the truck and money to burn, we raced to make the party. Band-Aid was a little heavy afoot, and just outside Pincher Creek, Alberta, the Mounties pulled us over. Corby's beer, which he'd been drinking, went under the truck seat. Band-Aid wasn't drinking, and I stuffed my beer into my sock and under my jeans. The police make their excuses to search the vehicle, smell of alcohol, no doubt. They immediately find the beer under the seat, and a quick search of the truck finds my electric water bong a long, treasured, well-resined pipe. He looks very happy, thinking he was about to take down some potheads. Now, we were about to get searched, which was no big deal, as nobody had any drugs. But I did have that beer can. <laughs> the officer, one of the officers was headed to the car. The driver's side window was open. Now, at that time, there's a space under the Mountie's back seat, maybe an inch, inch uh, spacing off the floor. I'm trying to kick this uh, can of aluminum underneath the space, space of the seat as the cop's coming up. It sounds like it's on a mic megaphone. As the cop approaches, uh, opens the door, I had given a final kick. The aluminum can disappeared into the uh, space. Now, as we're, as we're being searched, it's a Saturday. Over the radio comes a warrant for Corby's arrest for some minor traffic thing and he's in the back of the, and he's back in the squad car. Band-Aid and I follow the car back to uh, Pincher Creek. Hoping, hoping something good's going to come out of all this. The justice of the peace isn't going to come in for some rinky-dink paperwork. The weekend is officially fucked. Amazingly, the JP had to come in for something or other and Corby comes out a little shorter on cash, but a free man with the addition of a $25 illegal possession ticket. I'm still gutted over the bong loss. Bandit gets a speeding ticket, ticket, and off to Calgary we go. We get to the party. We know most of the people. It's a friendly group, a good mix of people keeping conversation and drinking flowing. 
All was going well until a roving bunch of party crashers showed up. Two of these guys, cowboys, got through the door and they were unfortunately dressed identically. I spoke to them for a few minutes and found they were not twins or brothers. So why they were I dressed? They were dressed with the same cowboy hats, shirt, belt, boots, the whole nine yards. So I made some amusing quip reference or haberdashery. And they, like Queen Victoria, were not amused. I was punched in the head and outgunned as both cowboys' punches were landing and I was about to get a beating until Corby leapt into the fray. Somehow or other, we ended up outside. Corby was in his element, chaos reigned, and he thrived. A mini-riot had broken out, and complete strangers were fighting like extras in a Western movie. Corby didn't play by the Marquis of Queensbury rules, and well before Mike Tyson, he locked his teeth into one of our fabulously dressed cowboy's ears. My guy, <laughs> who I was scrapping with, was unnerved by his buddy screaming, and he deserted the fray. He fucked off at the high board, full outrun, disappeared. Now, I don't know what that says about friendship, but I'm betting they never dressed the same again and probably spoke even less. Sirens are sounding close by and Corby stops chewing on the cowboy and we DD out of the light and into the back door of the house, which is largely now emptied. Cops arrive and make their arrests and are trying to sort out what was going on. We plead innocence and the girls back us up. The cops are happy with the arrests they have and no doubt have enough paperwork for the night. We have no idea where Band-Aid is and we never see him again. So Band-Aid, if you're out there, give us a call. Let me know what you've been doing for the last 40 odd years. <laughs> the night goes out with a bang and the next day Corby and I go our separate ways. It's about a year later, I joined the military and I was awaiting training in Penhold, Alberta. I had left my ID card and ID discs in my barrack room and went AWOL, extending my Christmas vacation for a few days. I headed to Edmonton to Corby's place. Corby, good friend that he is, greeted me with a hug and offered up his place as a hideout. Holiday merriment ensues. Now, somebody from the base in Penhold had uh, phoned my mom to see if she knew where I was. My brother, Will, knows where I am and he rats me out to her, gives her the phone number. She phones and pleads that I turn myself in. Well, shit. What are you going to do? Your mom's crying on the phone. You're about to wreck, wreck the rest of your life. If you're not a complete shit heel, you listen to her and turn yourself in. I turn myself in. So I, I show up at the MP shack in Edmonton, thinking I'm going straight to jail. Being a cornflake, I knew nothing of the military justice system. Now, cornflake is a uh, badge that all new recruits get somewhere along their training. And uh, it's got the Tri-Services logo on it, and it's colored to gold. And it's sort of an uneven shape, so it's uh, nicknamed the Cornflake. So I tell them they're looking for me, which is a surprise to them. A few phone calls later, they put me on a bus to Penhold, where I get instruction to report, report to my section 0700 sharp. <laughs> I sleep in, and a variety of shit rains down on me. Now, the shit that I received in Penhold is not the quality fuckery you would find on an army base like Petawawa. Still, it was enough to make you question your life choices. Charge parade follows after a couple of weeks of fuckery. I get double quick time marched up to Lieutenant Colonel Stickley, who gives me a father-son heart-to-heart talk. 
And he tells me his faith in my future endeavors. He may have been a tad optimistic. Anyway, I get a $50 fine, which is a slap on the wrist. It's a base stand down, and I'm free to go. I talked to an Air Force acquaintance into the drive to Edmonton to party for the weekend. Kevin has no idea what he is in for. None whatsoever. He's a babe in the woods. We arrive at Corby's place. Cars and bikes and parts are strewn about the yard. Music's playing loudly. I walk in without knocking. Chad, Corby's older brother, spots me first, picks me up and slams me into the wall, threatening to kill me for being dumb enough to join the military. <laughs> we both laugh and I introduce Kevin, who is bug-eyed, wondering what the fuck he has walked into, but relaxes as Corby hands us both a beer and gives Kevin the Mikasa Sukasa speech. Also in attendance are Corby's brother Scotty, Chad, my brother Will, who had ratted me out, and a guy named Spider a passionate member of a local motorcycle club. Hell of a nice guy, but not to be fucked with. He had a great sense of humor. That's as a side note. There were a couple of women there also who are of questionable hygiene. Penicillin and Penny should be on the playlist. The Friday night is spent drinking to my freedom and celebrating into the wee hours. And Kevin foolishly becomes relaxed, aided by one of the ladies. Saturday, Saturday night comes rolling around. My youngest brother's girlfriend, Anne, was slinging drinks at a bar called the Convention Inn West. She later said when she saw me, my brother Will, Chad, Scott, Kevin, and Corby walk in, that there was going to be trouble. Now, we weren't looking for trouble, but we headed for where trouble was most easily found, the pool tables. We weren't the type to go dancing. We're, we're doing pretty well, running the tables and not, and smoking and joking. The guy I'm playing, playing, is, is playing with is being a schmuck and not taking the good-natured ribbing well. He's running his mouth trying to be funny. He wasn't. He, he bent down to pick up the chalk he dropped on the floor. Someone, and to this day I have no idea who, or even who it was directed at, said, fucking goof. Now we'll pause here for those of you who have never done time in jail or detention. Goof is pretty much the, the most insulting thing you can call someone. It refers to child molesters, the lowest kind of humanity, even in prison. If someone calls you a goof, you need to respond quickly with maximum violence. Because you don't want to be labeled a, a uh, child molester. Being labeled child molester in jail or prison is going to get you beaten up or worse, killed. So on with the show. Buddy pops up and says, you think I'm a goof? I said, you just answered to it. <laughs> Once again, my humor was not appreciated. And he came at me. I hit him, on the hit him on the nose, feeling his blood spray into my face. He staggered and fell backwards, and all hell broke loose. Corby is swinging and kicking at anyone he, d he doesn't recognize. I spot my brother isolated and try to get to him. Now, your focus is narrow, con concerned about what is in your grid square, and trying to help out your buddies all at the same time trying not to get blindsided by a pool cue or somebody throwing a cue ball at your head. And in the meantime, is simultaneously trying to keep the bouncers off us because we're not local and yelling at us to get out because cops were on the way. If you have never been in a large bar fight, just think of Anne as a cat herder. People are trying to get out of the bar to avoid the fight. Some are trying to get in to see what's going on. And then there's guys involved in the fray just trying not to get beat. But the bar, somehow the bar piles out into the street. 
Now, this is mostly after action uh, reporting now, because like I said, you're concentrated on, on who you're fighting with, and you're not really aware of what's going on around you. But we got outside, our crew of guys start out relatively close together, swinging at any threat. We can hear sirens, and Anne grabs my brother and pushes him into a cab. In the melee, we lose contact with each other. Kevin makes it to Will's cab. Corby is biting some guy's face. <laughs> he did a lot of biting when he was fighting. And landing bows with his knees. The cab driver with Will and Kevin pulls up beside me, and the cabbie yells to get in. Cop cars have been are now turning into the parking lot. I'm yelling at Cor Corby, who is actually fucking snarling, to get in. He takes a last swing, and we get out of Dodge. The cops aren't concerned particularly by people leaving in cabs. They're more worried about the guy still fighting in the parking lot. So we, we get home, none the worse for wear. There's some sore knuckles, a black eye here and there. And somebody or other had a bloody nose. We, we finish up the Saturday drinking into uh, the morning daylight. Sunday morning comes, comes along. And the boys want to go to the bootlegger to get some more alcohol. I don't need any more alcohol, but I haven't been late in quite some time. So I want to go visit a girl I know. The boys are refusing to let me go anywhere except the bootleggers. So I agree. I go into the bathroom, uh, crawl out the bathroom window, and uh, disappear for a couple hours. When I, when I get back, Kevin has obviously been crying. He, he's an agitated mess. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what's going on. He's, he's a babbling idiot. So Corby breaks in and tells me the following story. What, what they uh, told Kevin was to get in the truck with them. They're going to the bootleggers. They drive out in the country. Kevin's completely lost. He has no idea where he is. And the boys start talking about maybe robbing the uh, bootlegger. Kevin is in the military, and he's obviously not wanting to break into any place or steal anybody's booze or money or anything else for that matter. So he tries to explain that to the boys. The boys are having none of it. So they pull into Buddy's yard. And uh, there's some, some rifle and shotgun blasts out the, uh, in the house. And the boys come running back with uh, weapons and uh, the TV and some other shit. Now, by this time, Kevin is hysterical. The boys jump in, peel into the truck, and uh, peel out of there and head back to the house. Kevin now thinks he's going to jail for armed robbery or murder. He has no idea what's going on. And the boys aren't telling him what happened. <laughs> what happened was, as, as uh, Corby related, was they went to Chad's farmhouse, went into the house, fired off some of Chad's weapons out the back door, and then came running out and threw it all in the truck. <laughs> now... That, that's pretty much the end of the, uh, end of the story. Except I like to think of Kevin years later telling the story over and over again about how he thought he was going to jail. He has a great story to tell. What he doesn't know that he's going to add to the story is that he ended up with a case of venereal disease. And he didn't find out that till a couple weeks after the uh, weapons incident. So it's a great story to tell. A little cruel, but a great, he's got a great story. Now, we, Kevin and I headed back to Penhold. I didn't know this. I didn't know this at the time, but it was to be the last time that I saw Corby. A year or so later, he was dead. He went too fast into a turn and crashed a friend's Harley into a cement divider at high speed.
not a cheery note to end on, but you and I drift in and out of people's lives, and we can hope to meet people we, who will anchor us, that bring out the best in ourselves, to give us purpose. As G.K. Chesterton said, we're all in the same boat in a stormy sea, and we owe each other a terrible loyalty. Corby lived and died full throttle, and in a manner he would have been pleased with. Can any of us wish for more? It is said that as long as people mention your name, you are never truly dead. So Corby will live on much longer and continue to make people smile. Friendship is the hardest thing in the world to explain. It's not something you learn in school. But if you haven't learned the meaning of friendship, you really haven't learned anything at all. And those wise words were from none other than the great Muhammad Ali. I may be no closer to being able to define friendship, but I recognize it in its numerous faces. And it looks like George Frampton, Bob Baudry, Robbie Robinson, Derek Nearing, Joanne Robertson, and many of you listening to this pod. The kind of people who live the Airborne Brotherhood, the bond of being a fellow veteran, or are simply extraordinary people who will, in your moment of need, drop what they are doing to help. Lillian Whitting said, to be friends, to be rich in friends, is to be poor in nothing. And as for me, I lack for nothing, as it seems I am more wealthy than I'd imagined. And, and maybe that is the theme for this pod, friendship. And I'm pleased, honored, and humbled to have many of you as friends. On that note, we'll let Joe Cocker carry us out. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Thank you for your contributions. And remember to live life now, as tomorrow may be too late. So thanks to, thanks to all of you once again. It's been much appreciated. And I hope I can make some products for you, or produce some pods for you that make you smile and laugh. So here's Joe.